if you're like me and you're interested in modern American politics, there can be no more interesting and, and vital figure than the great Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I mean, Moynihan is a zealic, zealot-like figure of contemporary American political history. I mean, serving in the, the Kennedy and the Johnson administration um, and you know, causing quite a bit of tumult with his now iconic uh, The Negro Report, um, serving in the Nixon uh, White House as some sort of like House liberal, uh, Gerald Ford's uh, ambassador to the UN, of course, Nixon's uh, ambassador to India, later this iconic senator from the state of New York who wrote, as, as George Will said, wrote more books uh, during his time as a senator than most senators actually read. I mean, Daniel Patrick Moynihan um, was at the center of American political life and its key controversies for almost 50 years. Okay, Gil Troy has written about one of these particular moments in Moynihan's career. This book is called Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism as Racism. Now, this particular moment in Moynihan's career occurred in the mid-1970s when the United Nations passed a resolution de- officially defining Zionism as racism. And as Gil Troy very aptly uh, details. This is a, a moment in American form and in the history of American foreign policy that that foreshadowed Moynihan's speech foreshadowed Ronald Reagan and a, and a, and a newly sort of muscular and confident tone in American foreign policy. And at the same time, this book is about is a history about the American and the Western left as it slowly moved from a pro-Zionist, pro-Israel uh, stance to what Gil Troy. Uh, uh, describes today as uh, one that is uh, uh, hostile to the state of Israel and hostile to the very concept of Zionism. And, and, and what Giltroy was able to do is to really write uh, a thoroughly readable, significantly you know, well-informed book that covers this one particular speech, but really, I think, gets to the heart of one of the major issues um, that, that's pulsating uh, in the heart of the Middle East, meaning the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, and what exactly is Zionism according to kind of Western and non-Western intellectuals. So if you're interested in modern American politics, if you're interested in the modern uh, Middle East, especially the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, this is a book for you. Gil, Gil Troy is a professor of history at McGill University. He's written widely about um, the American political history, especially 1980s and Ronald Reagan. But he's also written, he has a book called Why I Am a Zionist. And so some this is someone who most definitely dabbles in the history of modern Israel as well as modern American politics. I mean, simply put, there's probably nobody better prepared to write this particular book than Gil Troy. Uh, we had a really great conversation about his book. Um, it put out by Oxford University Press. I, I urge you to you know, listen to the, to the podcast. Um, go buy the book, read it, and um, I think it will spark uh, some interesting uh, you know, uh, conversations uh, within yourself and amongst your friends. Okay, I hope you enjoy our conversation. 
Hi, Jeff. Uh, Gil Troy, how are you doing? Excellent. How Excellent. Are you? Well, welcome to New Books in Politics. Um, today, we have uh, on our program Professor Gil Troy. Um, Gil Troy is a professor of American history at McGill University in Montreal. And you've written uh, widely uh, on issues of uh, contemporary American politics and um, uh, Israel. And today we're going to be talking about your really fabulous new book, Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism as Racism. And this is put out by Oxford University Press. First, I got to say, Gil, I really enjoyed your book. This is fabulous. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the kind words. You'll get a nice check from my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll be looking for it. Okay, good. <laughs> why don't we start off? Why don't don't you just, cash it. It'll just be, you know, just check. Just, oh, okay. Just, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just frame yeah. it. I'll put <laughs> right, it in right, with right. all the other checks from all the... Uh, with their autographs, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Why don't you tell the li- listeners a little bit about, um, you know, your, you, your personal and professional biography? Well, I'm an American historian, and I've been teaching at McGill University for about 20 years. And um, most of my books have been about the American presidency. Uh, my first book was on presidential campaigning called See How They Ran, looking at the role of presidential candidates and how it changed from being passive to active. And I've written books about the Reagan administration, about the uh, Clinton years. And um, so most of, my book, most of my books are focused on the presidency. But when I was a kid, I confess, I uh, had this fascination with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and of course he was senator from New York for four decades, uh, for four terms. And um, when I all of a sudden put together the fact that Moynihan's moment, this tremendous moment in November 10th, 1975, when he stood up in the well at the UN, um, was six months after the fall of South Vietnam. And America was at such a low point, and I've long been fascinated with both the 80s but also the 70s. The 80s is a moment of mourning in America, um, and the 70s is a moment of despair in America. Hmm. And here was someone standing up and saying, we don't we don't want to be pushed around. Um, we're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. I hmm. said, ah, this is an interesting story. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'd, I'd heard about this speech for years and years, uh, but, you know, your book finally prompted me to go onto YouTube and, and listen to it. And it just reminded me just how eloquent, you know, Moynihan was. And it, it really is quite a speech. Um, what about 26 minutes long? Is that the is that how long it is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and there's, a, there's a short clip in YouTube and, and, and a longer clip and just even, you know, the short clip and he gets up and he, you know, he was always very well dressed, very elegant, but yeah. you know, he's got a little bit of the wild hair of the 1970s. <laughs> he says, the United States will not acknowledge, will not abide by, will never acquiesce in this infamous act. And infamous act, of course, echoes Franklin Roosevelt in 1941, the day of infamy. And you look... Paragraph after paragraph is beautifully constructed. It's it's so eloquent. It just sings, um, and they don't make them like they used to. Yeah, they don't. I mean, it is. It's uh, it's classically delivered, um, and and you know. Moynihan can pull that off the the the, the big oratorical flourishes um, just made made me I gotta admit I'm you know I'm a, I'm a big admirer of Daniel Patrick Moynihan and just makes you miss him all the more um, now this book it, what I liked about it is that it sure it's about um, you know this particular speech this particular moment in time in the mid 1970s but it seems to me this it's also a you know a kind of political intellectual history of the early to mid 1970s you know you really if if you're interested in the you know 
how ideas and politics of the mid seventies, especially on the left, um, if you're interested in that, um, which which I am, I mean that's my particular bailiwick. Uh, this is definitely uh, the book for you. Uh, why don't we start off? You can just tell us um, about um, UN Resolution thirty three seventy nine. I'm not I'm not given to, uh, to memorizing re- UN resolution numbers, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you could just tell us what is UN Resolution thirty three seventy nine. UN Resolution 3379 was the resolution passed by the UN General Assembly in November 1975 declaring Zionism to be a form of racism. So in a body that was of a whole series of nationalisms, they picked out one form of nationalism, Jewish nationalism, uh, and declared it to be racist. Um, And Moynihan came into the UN just months before as a U.S. ambassador um, without a deep connection to Israel. He said, you know, this was not, he said, Israel was not my religion, was one of the phrases he used. Um, And in fact, he sort of resented that as an academic, he'd never gotten a free trip to go there and had never been to the country. And he had some friends who were very involved in issues, but but it just wasn't his issue. And he saw this um, as an attack on democracy and decency. He saw this, as you were suggesting, as part of a broader both deterioration uh, in the left um, and a, a failure on the part of the left to stand up for Western values, for American values, for democracy. Um, and he also saw a shift that was occurring in the United Nations where it was becoming the third world dictators debating society <laughs> and Americans weren't ready to stand up. They weren't ready to fight the UN because the UN had been their creation. And he said, we have no choice. We must do this. Yeah, you, you, you recall um – a, a UN, at least in the American mind, in the mid up until the mid 1970s, the UN was extraordinarily popular, and it's like reading about an institution. Well, that well, it is in the past, because um, you know, and, and I, I'm sure when you, I, I, I wonder, like if McGill students are similar to my students when I talk about the UN and I ask, you know, what they think of the UN, it's sort of the UN is met with eh, either derision or sort of oh, the UN, I suppose it exists, does it really matter? Um, but you, you do a, a fine job of talking about how sort of popular the UN was with sort of middle America, you know, up until the early 1970s. I mean, is, am I reading that correct? No, absolutely. I mean, McGill students, as Canadians, they have a little bit more of a positive sense of the UN than, yeah. than Americans do. Um, but but still, there's you know there's been just a drop in in esteem for the institution. And you know, going back to 1945 and reading Time magazine and New York Times and uh, and letters uh, that were written at the time, it, it was redemptive. It was it was the institution that was going to heal uh, the world after World War II. It was the institution that was going to guarantee there would be no Third World War. Um, there was so much faith put in that institution. Yeah, yeah. And, and I say it's almost like a, a divorce where, you know, the divorce turned so ugly that people forgot they ever were in love. So <laughs> Americans in some ways have forgotten how much they were in love with the UN. And that's why this, to me, very important turning point uh, in November 1975 has been somewhat neglected and somewhat forgotten, even in historical studies, because Americans have gotten so used to disrespecting the UN yeah. at the moment when the UN fell in American esteem is not a major turning point when I argue it is. It's a major turning point for the UN. It's a major turning point for the U.S. It's a major turning point uh, for the conversation about what the United States should be doing in foreign policy and, as you were suggesting earlier, with the, the very nature of liberalism in yeah. the modern world. Yeah, it's one of my, in my own work on Henry Scoop Jackson and other sort of 
early post-war um, vital center liberals. Uh, there was a thoroughgoing movement, I'm sure you know about this, of you know liberals who sought to believe that the UN could be a first step towards sort of some sort of world federalism. You know, and and these weren't just sort of Henry Wallace popular front liberals. These were, you know, hard-headed, you know, eventual vital center liberals who believed this and, you know, state resolutions and places you wouldn't expect. I mean, there were, it's hard to, you know, kind of imagine how popular the, the United Nations was in the early post World War II era. Um, but in, but you talk about how, um, how this moment kind of crystallizes um, as the UN, I think you said a, a third world dictator debating society, how it, slowly became that in the public mind and 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 also sort of what has become of the western left um could you talk about you talk about the authoritarian left could you kind of tell us what what you mean by authoritarian left and how that how they fit into this story of zionism as racism yeah thanks for zeroing in on that because yeah. I, I spent a lot of time trying to find the right vocabulary and the right words yeah you know it's too easy especially writing in 2012, uh, when I was writing it, um, you know, now 2013, um, it's too easy to fall into left-right language, you know, yeah, red-blue yeah. language, language that, that, that just demonizes the left. Yeah. Um, and we should start with the fact that Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a man of the left. He was a liberal, and he wasn't just a, a classic Franklin Roosevelt liberal. He was a liberal who served in the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration. He'd mm-hmm. been the House liberal for the, for the Nixons. Um, and he, he wanted to, to hold on to liberalism, but what he sees occurring in liberalism is in the wake of the 1960s, uh, in the wake of the Third World Revolutions, in the wake of what I call um, these new Che Guevara rules that mm-hmm. come in that valorize and 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 romanticize anybody who's considered to be oppressed, yeah. um, especially people of color, especially people from Asia and Africa, from the third world, uh, fighting somehow Western whites, that there was a shift in the left. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a, there's a new totalitarianism um, that, re- that, that sacrifices core values like democracy, core values like human rights for the service of what they consider to be their greater good. And so I, I use the term authoritarian left. I sometimes use the word totalitarian left to talk about that left, that extreme left um, that was not the, the centrist liberalism of uh, the Kennedy administration. It was not the, the, the kind of liberalism that uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was trying to defend. Um, and, and and he's hurt. He's, he, he feels betrayed. Yeah. Um, and, and he's fighting on a domestic front uh, in the 1960s when he comes out with the Moynihan report and then the benign neglect memo and he's considered to be a racist when what he's trying to do is simply use social science methodology, use um, his, his intellect and his and his academic background to understand what's happening in the black family, to understand what's happening in the civil rights movement. Um, and he's demonized on domestic policy. And then um, in the mid-1970s, here he is in the UN, and he's feeling very much alone, um, very much abandoned, again, by the left and even increasingly by the center, because he feels that Americans have forgotten how to defend themselves. Yeah. And they've so internalized the guilt of the 1960s and the self-blame of the 1960s that they're not ready to stand up and say, no, there's red lines we have to draw sometimes, and we're going to defend ourselves. And and this is why, you know, you identify this speech as kind of a, not just a seminal moment for Moynihan, but as sort of foreshadowing uh, Ronald Reagan. Is, is Am I correct in reading it that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, we, you know, I said that one of the triggers for me in writing the book was seeing it six months after the fall of South Vietnam, and, and Moynihan is very aware of that. And then, 
you know, the more I went into it, the more I realized was that in many ways, Moynihan's moment, as I call it, Moynihan's speech um, in November 1975, when he stands up and he feels very much alone, and all of a sudden, when he gives that speech, there's just this wave of public affirmation and, yeah. and tremendous surge of American patriotism. It anticipated the Reagan Revolution, and there's a link because that same November 1975 is the time when Ronald Reagan launches his uh, ultimately unsuccessful campaign against Gerald Ford for the 76 Republican nomination. And Reagan frequently quotes Moynihan's speeches and his speeches hmm. and gets applause. Hmm. And so Reagan is seeing the, what I call Moynihan's politics of patriotic indignation, yeah. this, this sense of, 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 of strong values um, and, and great fervor and, and great patriotism uh, being useful politically and tapping into it um, at a time when people think, oh, you know, Americans are no longer patriotic. Americans are demoralized. Americans are weak. And Moynihan said no, and Reagan said no, and, and, and showed them the way, whether you love Reagan or hate Reagan. That was one of the dynamics that was going on in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, so maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, because uh, Moynihan is, is is such a, like, a Zelig-like figure, <laughs> you know, in, in domestic policies of the mid-60s and the foreign policies in the mid-70s. Maybe you could just, you know, for those who don't know a whole lot about Daniel Patrick Moynihan, other than he's some senator who used to hold Hillary Clinton's chair and he wore bow ties. <laughs> who, who is this guy? So he's this tall, six-foot-five, well-spoken uh, Irish Catholic who talked about growing up in the streets of New York. He was actually originally born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but he was very much a, a child of Hell's Kitchen and a child of a broken home at a time when that wasn't um, as, as familiar a phenomenon as it is in, in, in modern America. Yeah. Um, his mother, for a very short time, ran a bar, and that was also part of the, 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 the story and the legend. Um, and he, like so many people of his generation, um, fought in World War II. He was uh, in the Navy and, um, and parlayed that into a better education and, and, and a better path for himself. And all of a sudden, this kid from Hell's Kitchen uh, who spends also a year or two after uh, his time in the service in England and gets a bit of a dandified affectation, <laughs> falls in love with the oratory of Winston Churchill, loves to dress in uh, fancy uh, suits, um, ends up as a Harvard professor, ends up as a domestic policy analyst, as I said earlier, for the Kennedy administration and then the Johnson administration, and then Nixon hires him as his House liberal. Um, <laughs> and he's someone, he's, he's from that generation that saw every public act, be it writing a letter or speaking as a performance. Hmm. And his letters, uh, which have now been uh, collected and are also in the Library of Congress, are, are marvelous. Um, he spoke beautifully. He spoke eloquently. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, uh, John Kennedy is assassinated in 1963, and Mary McGrory says oh, we'll, we'll never laugh again. And uh, Moynihan says, oh, we'll, we'll laugh again, but we'll never be young again. Um, mm. And that becomes one of the, kind of the, the, the signature phrases from the, from the Kennedy assassination. Um, he, he writes this Moynihan uh, report, and it helps shape uh, Lyndon Johnson's civil rights policy and great civil rights speech. Um, he's there during the, the fights over South Vietnam and the Vietnam War in the Nixon White House. He's lucky, um, this is Elig, and he's dispatched to India to be U.S. ambassador to India precisely as Watergate blows up. So he's not besmirched by all the ugliness in the Nixon White House, but he's enough of a Washington player and frankly enough of an egotist that he regrets having been 
so much of an outsider in the Nixon world that he wasn't even touched by the scandal. So on one <laughs> hand, he's very he's 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 he's, he's you know very relieved, um, but he also you know sees the degree to which he was marginalized by the Haldemans and the Ehrlichmans, um, who who were of course so central to that Watergate scandal. And then lo and behold, in mid 1975, after he he writes this amazing commentary article called the U.S. in Opposition, where he says. The U.S. has to realize that the world has changed and we have to start fighting for our dignity and fighting for our rights as the opponents in the U.N., uh, as the ones who are outmanned and outgunned in the U.N. Um, Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford hire him to be U.N. ambassador. Henry Kissinger, of course, is Secretary of State and um, National Security Advisor, and Ford was this new president coming in not having uh, faced a national electorate because he replaced Spiro Agnew and then replaced Richard Nixon, and America the shock of Watergate, the shock of Vietnam, the shock of Nixon's resignation, the shock of uh, rampant inflation, the shock of soaring crime, especially in New York City, Moynihan's beloved city, and the city which now, where he's now serving as the UN ambassador, makes it all this this moment where it seems like New York and the United States are going to hell. Yeah, and um, and and that also inspires him to stand and fight and make his and, and, and make his case for America and for American values. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to, I mean, if you had to choose one person uh, through which to study, to understand uh, American liberalism from, oh, Kennedy to Reagan, I mean, it's it's Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, and, you know, you, you bring up uh, an organization that's, that's only probably near and dear to my heart and maybe, I don't know, maybe – I guess Midge Dechter is still alive, a former member, the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, which yeah. <laughs> was one of these key um, neoconservative um, outfits of the mid-70s. And what I love, you know, this neocon is the most overused term, you know, ever since the 2003 war. No one uses it precisely. But you offered, uh, I guess, Irving Kristol, uh, you gave one of his definitions of what a neocon is and which is fantastic could could you maybe just talk just a little bit about you know sort of daniel patrick moynihan and his relationship to and a definition of neoconservatism yeah well first of all moynihan um is frequently called a neocon yeah um but he he hates the term yeah um and he resists it because he says it's, it's a term you know here you, you get the the beauty of one hand speech he says it was a term coined an epithet yeah um <laughs> and 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 he understands that it was indeed a, a term that was coined by um michael harrington the great anti-poverty activist who um was was trying to be dismissive of these uh these guys who were um a little bit too uh too 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 willing to go beyond traditional liberalism yeah um and irving crystal uh who was one of Moynihan's friends. And, and before I get to the neocon thing, I just sure. have to just mention that one of the great things about writing about Moynihan and one of the great things about Moynihan's life was he just had these extraordinary friends. I mean, he's yeah. part of this circle of, of, of people like Nathan Glazer and Irvin Crystal. Um, yeah. and, and, and they're, and they're so smart and they're so eloquent. Um, and they are committed to, Thinking through what's going on in the 1960s and 1970s, yeah. and um, 
and Crystal's saying that basically it's time for Americans to start defending themselves. Um, and, and what they're saying is we're not giving up on liberalism, but what we're, what we're trying to do is redefine liberalism in the wake of the failures of the Great Society, in the wake of the traumas of the 1960s, and we need a more uh, vigorous and muscular foreign policy. We need a more realistic approach to our, our domestic problems. Um, and and Crystal elegantly lays it out, and Moynihan still doesn't accept it, um, <laughs> but respects it. Yeah, I mean, I always think of, you know, there's two camps of the neocons. There's the neocons who became conservatives, and the neocons who, you know, kind of stuck, remained Democrats, and uh, that's how I think about Moynihan, even though, fine, he doesn't accept the term. Um, I mean, the neocons of the 1970s, and I, I love reading old issues of public interest and commentary, because yeah. those were just... Um, just hotbeds of just great ideas. Um, and it, it was Moynihan who claimed the Republicans were now the party of ideas in the 1980s, I believe, wasn't it? Did he famously? Yes, yes. And, and, and he, right, and he, right, and he said he saw the Democrats as having been that, um, and he feels disappointed. He says, "What happened to us?" Yeah, um, because you know these are people. You know, James Q. Wilson, we should mention also. Um, you know, the, the, these people, first of all, truly believed in, in social science and using academic uh, skills and, and social science, particularly to, to to think through social policy problems and to find solutions, um, and then to hash it out and to fight it out. And these people were, you know, capable of going two, three, four rounds in the public interest in commentary against them against each other and then you know have a uh, you know a warm embrace um and, and 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 a good dinner where they entertained each other endlessly um but they were very much most of them from the left uh believed in liberalism and that's again why you know Moynihan spends all this time fighting the authoritarian liberals fighting yeah. the totalitarian liberalism find, fighting the the ugliness that he sees in the new left um and and making sure and trying to make sure that that liberalism doesn't lose its way uh and i would think that in many ways he would be distraught because there are certain elements of the left that have lost their way. Yeah, I mean, this is where you you talk about, especially on 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 um, among these parts of the left that you're talking about, how Israel became, as you as you say, a fashionable enemy enemy. And I mean, maybe you could explain how um, Israel in the mid 1970s became a fashionable enemy with certain parts of the Western left that that were absolutely ascendant during this time. Yeah. It's not right. that it was just certain parts, but it's a, it, these these were the ascendant parts of the left. Right. Um, George Will, who is very much a conservative uh, and, and became a very close friend of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, said that Israel made a terrible mistake. It, law, it, it, it won uh, the war in, in 1967 at a time when the West was starting to fall in love with losers and, and, and fall out of love with winners. Um, and, uh, and what happens in 1967, Israel fights a war for its very survival. Uh, but two things occur. One is, and, and, and one of this, this was crucial to Moynihan's understanding of the entire period of the 60s and 70s, the Soviet Union. Um, partially because they're worried about the three million Soviet Jews who ultimately will be very much demanding their freedom, um, wants to clamp down on Zionism and is alienated by uh, from Israel, is, is, is humiliated because uh, the Soviet Union had been supporting the Arab states and the Arab armies that collapsed so quickly in that six-day war. So their propaganda machine starts generating 
reams and reams of paper, all kinds of pamphlets and books um, about not just Jews, but about Zionists. Uh, and they start demonizing Zionism. And then that hooks up with uh, the broader phenomenon and, and the most welcome phenomenon in the 1960s and 1970s, where not only in the United States, but also in Asia and Africa, uh, racism is being, unfortunately, it's not being eradicated, but in many ways it's being uh, defeated um, and limited. And so racism becomes the great crime. And, um, and the Palestinians are emerging on the world scene, and they realize that if their conflict with the uh, Israelis is simply a local conflict they will lose. But if they can globalize it, yeah. if they can hook it into what I've been calling these Che Guevara rules, which um, where, where, where the, 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 the rights and wrongs get blurry um, because you do it based more on what we now call identity politics, if they can hook it into the language of racism, colonialism, imperialism, then they will win. And they take this national conflict. It's a national conflict between Jews and Arabs. It's a national conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. It's a conflict where some Jews are darker skinned and some Palestinians are whiter skinned, but they call it racism. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's an attempt to racialize the conflict. It's an attempt to South Africanize the conflict. Um, and it works. And it works extremely well, especially with parts of the left who start looking at the issue of Israel through this prism um, that's a distorting prism, that's a perverting prism that claims that Israel is motivated not by security issues but by racism, um, and 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 it becomes, I say, an obstacle to peace. And one of my arguments in the book is an argument with the left, which is that if the left took the demonization of Israel and the accusation that Zionism is racist more seriously, the left would realize that there's no way to have compromise. There's no way to have peace treaties with when a country feels that it's being delegitimized, when a country feels that its, it's very honor is being besmirched. And this language of Zionism being racism has been a major obstacle to peace. And we've seen it that when that language is used less, then Israelis have often been more open to compromise and negotiations sort of in the hostile period. Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting point that I'd never really considered before. I mean, I... I I thought about Israelis maybe feeling like under, under some sort of siege mentality and being less likely, if you're trusting the world community, to see your country as legitimate and maybe be less likely to, to or less confident in striking a peace deal. But this this key idea of Zionism as racism as kind of delegitimizing the, the very project of Israel as as a source of um, sort of undermining domestic support in Israel for uh, for peace and treaties, and and that's kind of a one of is that am I right in understanding that's kind of a major yeah. point you're trying to make? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see you see it in in, in two separate ways. One is that the Israeli right feeds off it. Yeah. That the Israeli right is radicalized, and the Israeli center is, is, is partially radicalized when they feel under the gun, when they yeah. feel under attack. Um, so, you know, a major push uh, of settlements into Samaria, which was which was not a matter of security and wasn't a matter of of re- restoring. Um, Jewish communities that have been uprooted in 1948, but going back to to, to biblical lands, yeah. um, uh, which, which failed seven times, succeeds on the eighth time, shortly after the Zionism Racism Resolution, as a response to this huh. mugging, as a response to this attack uh, against the state of Israel. So that's the dynamic that's going on in terms of further radicalizing the problem. Um, and the other side is, 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 is as 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 you so eloquently summarized 
how do you expect people to make peace when the very honor is being attacked? How do you expect people to make peace when the very legitimacy of the national project um, is being distorted and perverted? And and we've seen it because when the UN resolution was repealed, and that in itself is an interesting story in 1991, you then had the Madrid conference, you then had Mm. the Oslo peace process, uh, and for all its flaws and all its failures, it was a dramatic and bold attempt to have peace between Israel and the Palestinians, but it only occurred once that curse, if you will, from the UN had been lifted. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I'd never really put that together, that... I knew about, you know, the UN resolution, you know, the original, but I wasn't sure if it had ever been, you know, rescinded. And the connection between that being rescinded and then, you know, what we call the peace process at that time, uh, you know, is finally gets gets underway. Um, I'd never really put that together. I mean, if you if we might just explain just a little bit, um, especially to our listeners who haven't spent any time in Israel. I mean, before I'd gone over there, um, I think I'm like many Americans, and I thought, oh yeah, most Israelis um, are, I wouldn't have put it in this term, Ashkenazi, but I would have assumed most Israelis were were white (laughs) or of European descent, and maybe you could just, you know, explain just for a minute, you know, if you go to Israel, just the remarkable, you know, racial diversity in Israel, which sort of makes the charge of Zionism as racism silly on its face. Would you like to just talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bulk of the Israeli population, certainly in the 1970s, um, is made up not of Holocaust survivors, not of, um, you know, European uh, colonists or or whatever it is called, but of uh, 850,000 refugees from the Arab lands um, who had been uh, in the 19 late 1940s and early 1950s, systematically kicked out of Iraq and of Yemen and of Morocco, and they are Sephardic, not Ashkenazic Jews. They're, yeah. they're dark-skinned. Um, they're, they, they had been in, living in Arab countries for centuries um, and had enjoyed relative peace um, because Christian anti-Semitism was much more lethal than Muslim anti-Semitism, sure. although, although there was Muslim anti-Semitism too. But in the wake of the Israel success in, uh, in being established in 1948, there was a huge backlash, and there were many, many pogroms, riots, um, and dislocations in Arab capitals, in Cairo, and uh, Damascus, and Baghdad, and wave after wave of refugees uh, came in. So when the resolution is being fought out in the 1970s, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, Chaim Herzog, and Moynihan himself in his speech, point out two things. First of all, that um, to say Zionism and racism is absurd because you do have a tremendous racial diversity on the part of the Israeli people. And secondly, that because Zionism is Jewish nationalism, because Judaism is this odd mix of a nation and a religion, yeah. um, and you can ultimately convert into this religion, it's actually much less blood-based and much more belief-generated than most forms of nationalism. So Moynihan argues that it's actually the least racist form of nationalism. Um, And one of the things that Moynihan says, and and frankly we should emphasize the tremendous support he got from the African-American community and from the civil rights community, um, was to say if we use the word racism to mean every is Bayard Rustin, the great friend of mine of the Gangs, if we use the word racism to mean every SOB with whom we disagree, then we demean the, the term itself. We, yeah. we distort the, the value of the word. 
And that was also one of Moynihan's big things. You know, the, my conclusion is a quote from Moynihan, which you often said, which is words matter. Um, we, we can't, we, we can't demean the coin of the realm. We can't use words to mean things that they don't. Um, so that, that whole dimension of, of calling Zionism racism, and now we see the, the claim that Israel's an apartheid state, is, is an attempt to demonize Israel, but it, it, it changes the historical facts and it changes the sociolo- sociological realities of Israel. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. I take students, not every summer, but um, maybe every other summer, I take them to Jordan, and then we spend a significant time amount of time in Israel. And the one thing I always try to do, especially when we go to Tel Aviv, is I'm like, you know, just note, and, and, and it's fascinating to watch, you know, these are Gentiles, students who have no connection to Israel beyond what they learned in Sunday school class. And we're talking about ancient Israel in this regard. Just how enormously uh, diverse uh, Israel is, and I, I know I had no idea uh, before I'd gone over there. Ethiopian Jews, you know, just you know, it's it really is um, an extraordinary melting pot. Um, at least that, at least my um, impression of, of Israel. Um, now we spend a lot of time kind of talking around the speech. Um, do you, is there anything in particular, uh, you know, about the speech that Moynihan gives? We talked about the style in which he gives it. What, what is it that makes this speech? Is, is it that it's such a, a a stirring and ringing defense of? of kind of liberal ideals in a time in which liberal ideals were under siege. Is that what makes this speech so, so kind of central and, and iconic? Yeah. Part of it is the setting, right? Part of it is that Moynihan's feeling very embattled. He's feeling very alone. Um, Henry Kissinger, his boss and secretary of state is stabbing him in the back. In fact, the, on, on the eve of the speech, uh, November 10th, 1975, I found a telephone transcript where Kissinger, the first Jewish Secretary of State, says of Moynihan, the Irish Catholic ambassador to the UN, um, we're conducting foreign policy here. This isn't a synagogue. <laughs> and Moynihan, and, and Kissinger and another uh, one of his aides joke about whether Moynihan wants to convert. So he's feeling lack of support, <laughs> to put it mildly, from yeah. his boss. He's feeling lack of support from the State Department. He's feeling the disdain of the New York Times, which is saying, why are you being so flamboyant and so confrontational? The Harvards, the authoritarian left, the, the <laughs> professoriate is looking at him as being too confrontational. Um, and, and at one point he's asked about, you know, why not tone it down on CBS News? He says, what is this phrase toning down? What does it mean to tone down? Who do they think we've become? How can we tone down our defense of our core commitments, of our core obligations, of our core values? And with that setting, there's a, a grandeur and a courage um, yeah. in his move. And then part two is indeed, as you were suggesting, that, that it's, it's not only a defense of Zionism, it's not only an attack on what the UN is becoming, but it's an eloquent defense about words having meaning yeah. and about human rights not being demeaned. And he predicts, he predicts um, what, what goes on in the next decades in the UN where human rights, which had been this universal standard articulated in the wake of World War II, start become, starts becoming a political battering ram. And the United Nations becomes uh, hyper-politicized and Israel becomes the world's whipping boy. And he, he lays it all out um, and he puts it in the context of the, the purity of Western thought and the need to have strong standards and strong symbols and strong values and strong ideals. And then part three is the explosion. The fact that this dramatic, courageous, bold speech 
leads to 26,000 letters coming in mm-hmm. to the United Nations, overwhelmingly positive uh, from, the, from, from Americans from across uh, the U.S., not just from ethnic enclaves, that um, Moynihan walks down uh, the streets uh, of New York and cab drivers stop and honk and go, boy, Pat, show him. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, he walks into Carnegie Hall with his friend Norman Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary, and people as one stand up and applaud. Um, at a moment when America's looking for heroes, they found one. Yeah. And he ends up, you know, one of twenty-five, one of people's 25 most intriguing people. Um, and he ends up on a cover of Time magazine, and he ends up becoming Pat Moynihan. He ends <laughs> up becoming a celebrity and a, and, a, and a pop star and a political pop star. And then he parlays that into his first run for the uh, U.S. Senate from New York, which ends up being a, a success. And, and then he serves for four terms. Yeah. And I mean, what a great Senate race. I mean, the 76th Senate race, yeah. which, which is on one hand is misleading because it is a showdown of the old left versus the new left, meaning Moynihan versus Bella Abzug. And in, the, and in 76 and in New York, it's the old left that wins. Right, but it seems to me that it's the new left under you know you know Bella Abzug and as she called you talked about the Watergate babies in the House that she referred to them as her children. I mean these right. are the people who are becoming ascendant um, in the Democratic Party. Um, and I mean if you could just talk a little bit about how um, at the end you know yeah Moynihan launched his political his electoral career but how he was unsuccessful um in his fight of zionism as racism and you just kind of talk about that as it moved into the 1980s you know i mean right so go ahead so, so two things one you know, very quickly the the um the the, the center race is it's it's just it's it's monumental and it's ultimately determined um, at the very last minute on the eve of the New York because the fight is of course in the primary not so much in the general election um, on the eve of the primary uh, John Oakes who's the New York Times editorial uh, writer goes away to Martha's Vineyard and his cousin Punch Salzberger who's just taken over the paper and feels like the paper has to go a little bit more centrist pens an editorial um, supporting Moynihan, even though Oaks would have wanted the paper to support Abzug. And in a pre-internet day, um, Oaks come, you know, opens up the newspaper and the next day and sees, oh my goodness, uh, my editorial uh, line is now supporting Pat Moynihan. He's so offended that he actually writes a letter to the editor of his own um, editorial thing and, and has it published the next day saying, I disagree, but it's enough to shift just enough votes and Moynihan beats Abzug by just a couple of thousand votes. Uh, back in a time when a New York Times editorial really could sway, sway an election. So Moynihan goes into the Senate. He disappoints people like Norman Podhoritz and in some ways uh, Henry Jackson by understanding that in order to be Moynihan, in order to be able to write whatever he wants to write and say whatever he wants to say, he has to vote much more conventionally and do a party line vote again and again as a New York Democratic senator. And the liberal senator, who so doesn't become this neocon pop star, but become much more of a conventional uh, senator as a legislator. As a legislator, you didn't but want to become Joe he, Lieberman, in other words. Right, <laughs> uh, right, exactly. He understood that he had he, he understood where his bread was buttered. Yeah. Um, but he broke Norman Podhoritz as a heart um, in doing that. And um, Moynihan, from the time he's in the Senate, is on a crusade to repeal that resolution. And everyone says the UN doesn't repeal resolutions. The General <laughs> Assembly has never repealed a resolution. Um, it, it went back on one decision it made to ban Spain from membership 
when because of Spain's alliance with uh, Nazi Germany during World War II, and once the regime changed, they they accepted Spain. But there had never been an undone resolution, and for 16 years, Moynihan pushes and a remarkable act of bipartisanship, where Moynihan first works with Reagan and ultimately works with George H. W. Bush, it gets repealed. That's the happy ending. Yeah. Unfortunately, and Moynihan lives long enough to see the unfortunately. Despite that, the what he called big red lie, this Soviet-inspired mm. lie, this Soviet-orchestrated lie, enters into the international bloodstream. And even during the Oslo peace process of the 1990s, even after the UN um, repealed its resolution, and even after the Palestinians and the Israelis have started a rapprochement, no one knew that it wouldn't end well, um, on this authoritarian left, on this new left, on, this, um, on campuses um, yeah. among extreme... Uh, totalitarian liberals, the the great big lie that Zionism and racism takes hold. And it culminates in 2001 with the Durban conference, which is supposed to be against racism, which turns into a major attack on Zionism. And Moynihan is heartbroken. And Moynihan sees that this fight that he had led and orchestrated succeeded on the institutional level, but his great fear from the 1970s and Chaim Herzog's great fear of the 1970s was true that this, this lie would be so great that if you think about it, there is no other slogan that has emerged from the 65-year history of the UN that I could think of that has had the same kind of traction as Zionism as racism. Um, and it's really a, a tragedy that this institution that was formed to create peace has ultimately been so successful in um, demonizing one particular country and, uh, and, and really, as I argue, exacerbating the conflict rather than helping to resolve it. Yeah, I mean, in, in my own travels, and, 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 and mostly they're almost all in Jordan and uh, a little bit in Egypt, uh, I mean, again and again, um, you know, you hear the terms, you know, this, this is amongst, you know, educated Arabs. Uh, you hear the term apartheid used again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Instead of security fence, whatever you think of the security fence, you know, good or good or ill, um, it's called the apartheid fence. And I'd never really put it together that you know this actually roots in the seventy-five UN resolution and even before that. And in your, I think you're absolutely correct in, in seeing that, um, you know, the, that the way that Israel has spoken about in the Arab world has fundamentally changed. Um, and, and, and beyond just sort of, you know, from an American perspective, well, who cares what the language is, right? Just get, just solve the problem. It's a heck of a lot more complicated than that. Right. And, and as Moynihan pointed out, you know, an apartheid state does not deserve to exist. Yeah. An apartheid state loses its legitimacy to exist. And so Israelis feel it, and Israelis understand that when they're being called that, that inaccurate accusation. First of all, it demeans the South African experience because yeah. the, the racial classifications that were in place in, in South Africa have not been replicated anywhere else that I know of and certainly have not been replicated uh, in Israel. Yeah. And to claim that is to dilute what occurred then yeah. and to distort what's happening now and to inflame the situation. Um, and you're right, it's become just part and parcel of the language. And this is one of the things that he was trying to fight. He was trying to fight a a perversion of language, a poisoning of the well, uh, of the intellectual well. And he saw in some ways that he succeeded, but in some ways, unfortunately, he failed. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. And one thing I, I always run into um, with Palestinians, educated, cosmopolitan people, um, when, you know, you talk about West Jerusalem, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, it's just like America. And in a way, you know, first of all, I think 
that's just not true if you've been to the U.S. West Jerusalem is quite a bit different than an American city. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's a form of delegitimizing it, saying this is right. kind of a foreign kind of occupying city that is not somehow become indigenous to the region. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, I mean, it seems to me that's just – you know, it's part and parcel of the language. Now, I mean, what the, towards the end of the book, what I find really, you know, I think spot on is, you know, you talk about, you know, you range from Edward Said to Peter Beinart, and you kind of put the discussion of Zionism as racism, you kind of update it up into the 1990s and the 2000s. Do, do you want to, do you have anything to say about that, just to, as a way of sort of informing the readers of, you know, how this how kind of contemporary intellectual debates figure into this? Yeah, I mean, and actually it was quite hard because I thought, ah, oh, this is the easy part. Um, I'm doing the hard, the, the, the hard archival work going to the Library of Congress and interviewing people for the 70s. I'll get to the 90s and, and, and the 2000s. There'll be you know, various other books that I can look at to, to help me plot out a chronology of anti-Zionism. And there really wasn't. Um, hmm. And so I tried to put together a kind of timeline that showed how this – Big Red Lie, as Moynihan called it, entered into the intellectual bloodstream and yeah. became so much accepted that it's not just, you know, uh, hostels who use it, but even internal critics. A uh, uh, Peter Beinart um, wants to criticize Israel, and, and, and certainly Israel is a democracy, and there's lots to criticize because it's a country, and all countries have their imperfections. Um, but to use the language of apartheid is to is to hijack um, the language of demonization and, and use it quite inappropriately. And and you see how, as you said, it's really this is Edward Said's great intellectual achievement because he orchestrated and the Palestinians very carefully in the 1970s had think tanks and advertising campaigns and a whole propaganda move propped up by the Soviet Union but also on their own to reframe the conflict. And when Yasser Arafat spoke at the UN in, in 1974, he reframed the conflict as one of Israel as a colonial power. When yeah. Israel, again, you can criticize Israel, but it's not a European colonial power. It didn't come from, it's not Great Britain going into India. It's not France going into Belgium. It's just not the same thing. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a false analogy. The racism analogy is a false one, but they knew they needed to nail Israel to the wall on these terms, on, 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 on these accusations, and it would work. And unfortunately, it did. Yeah, um, this is readable, breezy. And and one final thing, I, towards the end of the book, at least this is the only place I saw this, um, I think you really, you nailed Daniel Patrick Moynihan when you called him the Thomas Jefferson of late 20th century America. Mm-hmm. And uh, did, was that your own uh, had you did you borrow that idea or is that your own uh, kind of yeah I mean there, there are a lot of people who who sort of celebrated him as one of these great statesmen yeah um, and uh, you know George Will joked that Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote more books in the Senate than most senators read um, <laughs> you know, so th- th- there was there was this sense of of, of that and, and it was just an attempt to kind of capture just his his greatness and, and that that scholar statesman yeah. was it. It, was, it was you know it wasn't just that he was a politician but he was a scholar and and that ability to to forward the, the intellectual world so there's there's a bit of the Kennedy in him there's a bit yeah. of the Jefferson in him um, and what's most interesting to me is the more I talk about Daniel Patrick Moynihan um, you know, going on this book tour, the, the the one thing that people come back to and say again and again is, there's no one like him. Yeah. Who's who's on Moynihan today? 
Uh, and when they say that, they're talking about someone who could kind of link those two worlds. They're talking about somebody who could be a very clear and passionate Kennedy Democrat, but also be sufficiently civil and engaged that he could work in a Nixon White House. Yeah. Uh, and they're also talking about somebody who can, who's a liberal, um, a man of the left, who can ardently defend Israel on the terms of what he kept on calling democracy and decency. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, you know, I, I'm, this is the first interview of 2013, and so I've decided not to, you know, we're, we're starting off on controversial territory, talking about, you know, peace in the Middle East and you yes. know, political <laughs> civility. Um, I, you, I'm just curious. I mean, what do you think 2013 is going to bring as far as, uh, I mean, is it just continued sort of, um, you know, Israel will continue to deal with the problems in Gaza as they find them? lack a Palestinian authority that, well, either has no authority or doesn't want to exercise its authority. Is, is this is this what we're going to see for the foreseeable future? Well, you know, right now, um, Israel has to go through its uh, election campaign, and yeah. we, we all know how, how, how crazy and destabilizing those things can yeah, be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the joy of democracy. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the positive spin, which okay. is that you know, if we go back in time 10 years ago when Moynihan died, um, part of the reason why he was so despairing was because there had been the 9-11 terrorist attack, and it was and, and the 9-11 terrorist attack on the United States was part of a broader, um, you know, wave of attacks all over the world, but especially concentrated in Israel that had people thinking that this was just going to be a normal way of life. And I remember, you know, all my students saying after 9-11, oh, you know, it's never, you know, our life is never going to be the same. And, and it's interesting the degree to which our lives, for most of us, except for um, soldiers who have served so honorably, um, in a, in a country that on the whole has deputized them to do it without taking enough responsibility, but that's a whole other book and a whole other story. Yeah. Um, most people just went back to their shopping malls as George W. Bush, Bush infamously invited them to do. Yeah. So, but what does it mean? It shows that in many ways, as awful as things seem to be in 2003 and it seemed like they would be per, per, uh, in perpetuity, things got better. And I believe that, there's been a tendency in the Middle East to always try to do peace by throwing the Hail Mary pass. Yeah. And maybe now we're going to see a different model where with a little bit of calm and stability, with um, a little bit more security co cooperation between Palestinian forces uh, and the Israeli forces on the ground, with the right-wing Netanyahu government lifting uh, all kinds of checkpoints. Um, these things don't make the headlines, but those kind of steps might lead to the kind of quiet, and we might, wait, we might not get that beautiful Nobel Prize-winning peace treaty yeah. that sometimes works and sometimes ends up in flames, but we might get more of an India-Kashmir or an India-Pakistan border situation where at least you have quiet. Yeah. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of just having a little bit of quiet in the region as the necessary precursor to uh, real progress. Yeah, economic growth. I mean, this is uh, – I one time had a chance to sit down and talk with Dennis Ross, and the one thing he talked about was the Palestinian diaspora and its enormous entrepreneurial you know, abilities and you know, just waiting for the, the Palestinian money and business acumen to pour into the region. And you know, yeah. that's, that to me has always been the hope, hope, the, the hope for, the, for a Palestinian state. Um, but we'll see. Right, and you need the quiet. And you yeah. need the quiet in order to have that. And you need you know, to go beyond Hamas's totalitarianism. There's also a Moynihan concept that you know, when Hamas holds its people hostage and doesn't build, um, yeah. doesn't build shelters and doesn't build industry but just wants to destroy, then you have that totalitarianism, which is so dangerous.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gil Troy, Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism uh-huh. as Racism, Oxford University Press. Um, and we can go to giltroy.com and, and you're doing a, a book tour. So maybe you're going to be coming to a, um, a, an event near our listeners. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Okay. Thanks. B- bye, Gil. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed my uh, discussion with Gil Troy and, and uh, believe it will uh, spur you to go out and buy uh, his really interesting new book, Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism as Racism. This book has been put out by Oxford University Press. Uh, I look forward to having you uh, listen next week to another uh fascinating interview with an author of a new book in politics. 